Hallelujah, what a Savior. Turn with me to John chapter 5, please. John chapter 5. And we'll, uh, we'll pray and then we'll pick up uh, reading in verse... Um, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read again some of, some of what we read this morning and then we'll pick up our study in verse 9 for tonight. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you, Lord. What a Savior, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your grace. It goes beyond our ability to describe. Lord, we use words like marvelous or amazing, uh, but it never goes far enough. Lord, we thank you for sending your only begotten Son to save sinners. That's us. We pray, Lord, that you continually open our minds and hearts to these things so that we just, day by day, stand more in awe of you and your mighty works in our redemption. Please use your truth tonight to that end so that we may have a a better understanding, a greater view of you. And so that may lead to a better understanding of your love and your grace, your mercy towards us. Father, um, grant these things we pray. As always, we ask for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. I'm going to go back to uh, verse 1 to read, and and we'll read down through verse verse 18. Any any questions on what I said this morning or burning comments or something like that? You're just burning in your... Um, verse 4, you know, I mentioned this briefly this morning, but there, verse 4 is really questionable as to whether or not it, it, it even belongs in the Scripture. Um, that's the reason that some translations leave it out. Um, the way, the, I'll try to give you a quick, brief explanation here, Brother Carl. You, you um, If I leave something out or, or you know... Feel free to help me out here or, or correct me. But uh, what we call um, criticism, textual criticism, what they do is we don't have like one document like you hold in your hand, say from the from the second century, you know, that was handed down, one master document, you know, that ever. We don't have that. What we have is thousands, thousands of copies. And by the way, that's a blessing. Uh, you know, you're you're just able to the scholars are able to compare all of these thousands of, of documents. Um, and, you know, of course, the dates of them are different. You know, they go back as far as 2nd century and then everything in between from 2nd century through the 21st century. Um, because the way the Scripture was handed down is copied. Copied. You know, somebody, and we don't have the originals. We don't have the like, for example, the, the book of John. There's no original in existence. Uh, if, it, if it's out there, it's not been found, okay? We, we don't have the original. What we have is copies. John wrote this gospel, and then uh, our assumption is, because this was the custom, 
that they just begin to spread them around different churches. And so you, you take a letter, like, like a letter to the Ephesians or the letter to the Colossians or the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You take that to a church and they begin to make copies and they take it to another congregation and they make copies because everybody wants a copy of what the apostles have written, the apostles and their, and their uh, successors. Um, like Luke. Luke wasn't an apostle, but he was related to the apostles. He, was, he traveled with Paul and uh, ministered with Paul. Right? So they, they made copies. Well, over the years, you know, just like I, I could probably, you know, you've heard of these kinds of experiments being done. I could probably start with Sheila, you know, give, give, hand her something and say, copy this. And she could hand it to Dan and say, copy this. And you could hand it to, you know, um, just go down the line, Ron, and copy this. And by the time you get over to Bob, probably something's going to be left out or something's going to be added. Now, that just happens. But because we have thousands of manuscripts to compare, they can tell what's been left out and what's been added. So, for example, if you've got a document, let's just take verse 4, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm making up the, the dates here because I, I don't know what they actually are. But let's, let's say you've got a document from the 2nd century that does not contain verse 4. And then, like I say, this part's just hypothetical, the dates. But let's say you've got a document from the 2nd century that does not contain verse 4. You've got the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 4 is not there in the 2nd century. But then you get, you got another document over here, a copy from the 7th or 8th century, hundreds of years later, and there it is. There's verse 4. Well, you would conclude that got added. Okay, that's what happened. And that's why I like your, your, um, your footnotes. Did you have the NIV? And I probably had the footnote too, but, but what does your footnote say for verse 3b and, and verse 4? It says, paralyzed, uh, picked up with the word paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. Okay, that's the verse, but what's the footnote say? It doesn't give any explanation? No. Okay, usually what they'll say is something to the effect of... There you go. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the footnote. Yeah, go ahead and read that. I don't know. That's all it says. Some less important manuscripts, and then it gives that verse. It says this. Yeah, okay. So what they're saying is the the more uh, trustworthy manuscripts... And usually what they mean by that is the older ones are the ones that, you know, have the less problem. You know, they're, they're older and they've got less problems and, uh, you know, they're considered more, more reliable. So usually the footnote will say something like the oldest and most reliable transcripts either do or do not contain, you know, this word or this verse or whatever it is. That's the case with verse 4. So, it, and, and I was just reading this morning, it does appear in some of the early manuscripts, but, but few. So, so in other words, most of them, they're saying most of the early manuscripts leave it out, um, and then it and then it appears, and so they 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 think you know it's probably added uh, by somebody trying to explain what was going on here. Uh, so, the, what a lot of a lot of translators do when they see a problem like that is is they they got two choices basically if they want to be honest. I mean, they could just put it in there. And pretend like you know there's no issue with it, 
But if they want to be honest, they've got two choices. They said, we, we put it in and we put a footnote saying, you know, here's the deal with it. Or they, you know, some will leave it out and, and put a footnote. In this case, apparently the, the testimony uh, uh, in favor of it is, is pretty weak, and so they, so they leave it out and then put a, um, put a footnote at the bottom, you know, the, the editors do, at the bottom of the, in the margin or at the bottom of the page or wherever. But textual criticism is done by, by comparing all of these manuscripts to determine um, what is correct and what is incorrect. And that's why I said earlier it's, it's such a blessing that we have thousands of manuscripts. You're not talking about um, like two manuscripts that say two different things. You're talking in many cases about hundreds or thousands of manuscripts that they can take and compare. And then when they see, you know, okay, oh, we, got, we got this whole group of manuscripts over here contain this word or this verse or whatever's in question. And then we got some that come on the scene later and they have it, then the assumption is it was added at an end. And, and uh, it'll, it'll be in the King James because the King James is translated from later manuscripts. Okay. So, can I ask um, about the waters in the pool? Mm-hmm. Uh, this morning you mentioned something about superstition. It's, yeah. It's, it's not really for sure. Is it, I mean, you think it might be just a superstition in a deal? Or that... That that was happening? I think it might be, yes. Yeah, that's what I was suggesting. I mean, I suppose it's possible that that um, I, what you're asking, I guess, what you're asking is, could it have, could could God have been sending an angel to stir the water, and God was healing people that way? Well, I mean, no, I'm not even with an angel. I mean, just or whatever, yeah. Because we know definitely the the water, some something was definitely going on there, right? Verse seven is clear on that. The sick man answered, "Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up." So the water is being stirred up somehow, some way. And, uh, um, yeah, but, but yeah, I was kind of, kind of, um, suggesting that it may be superstition here, yeah. Surely they would have doubts, though, if it had never happened. Like they should have been seeing people healed if somebody made it in first. That's okay. I mean, no one's ever been healed. How many centuries does this go on? I, mean, I don't know. That stuff goes on all the time, even in our day. So, so I don't know. That, that to me is, is, is not. I know what you're saying, and it should, you would think, yes, but we, we constantly hear reports of people being healed by Statue of Mary and, you know, and, and this kind of thing. I mean, that stuff is constantly out there. And uh, so, yeah, you would think that nobody would be saying something like that unless it were true. But um, just the other day, uh, Bigfoot showed up again over in uh, South Texas or in the Houston area. And uh, so I know thousands of people claim they've seen Bigfoot. But I question it. <laughs> uh, yes. If, if this was a phenomenon that, uh, that was God orchestrated, yeah. it would seem, number one, that it would have other mentions. Secondly, that the Lord would have used that. Uh, he would have stayed with the system. Hmm. Uh, in other words... He, he would have seen to it if this was a if this was a God thing, this particular way of healing people, that the Lord would have stayed with that system and got the man in the pool and the water third and everybody's happy. Hmm. Uh, 
but he just, I mean, it's disregarded here. I kind of like what you said this morning. You said if, if 38 years, I'd have found somebody to get me down there to the pool. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that's pretty... <laughs> healed him himself. So, yeah, I mean, it just seems, you know, like that's, that's kind of why I was suggesting it. It just seems superstitious. but um, And definitely it goes on today, uh, for sure. Pe- people put their trust in all kinds of things. I mean, that's just, our, we're fallen. I mean, you know, that's part of our, our sin nature. We're, we're prone to trust in all manner of things rather than Christ, you know, rather than God. Um, so, uh, you, yeah, people come along today um, supposedly doing that kind of thing. They draw crowds. They draw crowds. Whether or not they're talking about Jesus. Any, does that, is that helpful on the, um, on the textual criticism? Yeah, they're, they're comparing it. it. And, you know, and you can even, not that we, I, I know the average person like us or whatever, we don't read the ancient languages, but, but still... Um, the stuff's available on the internet. I mean, it's out there. It's not like it's it's hidden. It's it's in museums, uh, prominent museums like the like like the uh, uh, museum in London. They ha- they have some of these manuscripts, um, and then you know they they um, whatever they call it, they take pictures of it, you know, and they put them out there on the net. I mean, I've looked at some of the Greek manuscripts myself on the internet. Uh, it's there. It's not like it's. There's a group of people hoarding them somewhere, keeping it a secret and saying, you know, just believe what we tell you. It, it's, this stuff's out there uh, and can be looked at. Uh, and, and there are thousands of them. Uh, and that, that, by the way, is it's not supposed to be a secret, but that's kind of a best-kept secret sort of thing. I mean, when, when people who don't believe in the authenticity of, this, of the Bible argue against it, and there are thousands of, te- of, uh, of, of documents out there testifying to the truth of it. it it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, there are very few historical documents um, that, that have a good uh, uh, sound textual evidence of authenticity. And none of them come even close to the New Testament, for example. None of them. 
And nobody, you know, one that gets used a lot in comparison is Homer's Iliad. Uh, and I, I can't remember now how many copies there are of it. <clears throat> but they don't even go all the way back to Homer. And nobody seems to question that Homer wrote it. <laughs> and, and there aren't near as many in existence as there are copies of the New Testament. A- ancient copies. I'm not talking about ones we hold, but ancient copies. So uh, it's just amazing. But that's what they do. They, they compare and they decide. Because you can imagine, with, we're, not, we're not even talking here about professional scribes. Over the centuries, you've got, you got thousands of different people in different languages and different cultures copying out the Scripture. You can imagine you know, there's spelling errors and, and uh, all sorts of things. So, so, uh, but one of the things that those thousands of documents do is testify to the truth of it. In other words, you, you can compare all of those documents and you've essentially got what you hold in your hand right here. That's an amazing thing. <laughs> They're compatible. That's right. Yeah, and like 5,000 in Greek, uh, New Testament. They are compatible. You'll never find John 3.16 saying anything different. Uh, than what, what, what the English translation that we have here. I mean, yeah. you make an argument that, you know, that, 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 uh, that the text, the text that we have, uh, the, Greek, the Greek text that we have, all of these different ones, there's no doctrinal disagreement in those that are accepted. Right. Right, and you and you, uh, when you do come across a, a a problem like like this verse, which which as Brother Carl just pointed, is not doctrinal, by the way. I mean, this doesn't have anything to do with with um, the atoning work of Christ or something like that. Um, but when you do come across a verse that is in question, or or, or verses passage that's 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 uh, that is in question, the scholars are honest about it, and that's why they're putting it in the footnotes. To, to let you know. I mean, there's, there's intellectual honesty here um, so, so that we know that, um, you know, that may not have been in the original. So it's not like, you know, somebody's trying to hide something. So, yeah, that's an amazing thing, that the, the evidence that God has given us to testify to the truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Amen. Amen. Anything else? What does Bethesda mean? House of mercy. Yeah. Or, or uh, literally uh, outpouring. House of outpourings. Plural. And there were two, two pools there. House of outpourings. So, yeah. Great name. Those, uh, when you, anytime you see that term Beth, like, you know, like Bethel is house of God. That's where, where Jacob had his vision. He, he called it after that, he called it Bethel, house of God. Or Bethlehem is what? Anybody know? Bethlehem? House of bread. House of bread, where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. House of bread. The, the bread, the, the, the manna <laughs> that God gave. It was born in the house of bread in Bethlehem. So, yeah, anytime you see that Beth, that's house of something. Beth. Something. Okay. Um, so verse 1 then. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool 
in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Amen. All right, so Jesus tells the man, he asks first, Do you want to be healed? And the man Answers, uh, you know, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. So Jesus simply commands him to get up, is what we talked about this morning, to rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Something that evidently would have been impossible for this man um, in his previous condition. You know, one second earlier, or a split second earlier, or whatever. Jesus commands him to do what he cannot do. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, he's already, uh, and although I'm going to show you in a moment, seems to be reluctantly, but he's already a walking testimony concerning the identity of Jesus. He's doing what he's not supposed to be able to do because of his infirmity. He's he's walking, number one, and number two, he's carrying his his bed. You know, it's kind kind of a bedroll thing that you could maybe throw over your shoulder and take, but he would not have previously been able to do that, evidently. And so he takes up his bed and he walks. Now, John points out, it points out in verse nine, second part of verse nine, that day was the Sabbath. Now, this this is what becomes the issue here for the Jews. Now, interestingly, um, when they when they see this man. Uh, isn't it interesting? There's no evidence of rejoicing, <laughs> compassion, anything of that sort. The only thing they're concerned with, it, it, it would seem here, the only thing they would, they're concerned with when they see this man is you have violated 
and I'm going to say it this way because this is really the truth, I think. They have said, you have violated our traditions. Now, no, they, what they're, the, way they're phrased, they're, the way they're terming it is you, you're violating the Sabbath. And, and then, the, momentarily, they're going to forget about the man and just translate that to Jesus because he did the miracle. You're violating the Sabbath. But I don't know that this is really in violation of the Sabbath at all. When you, when you go back and read the Sabbath laws, they really seem to have, have to do with um, the normal work, like, like when we think of going to work, whatever you do to make a living or you know, keep up your, maintain your, uh, your, your property and all that or whatever, along those lines. And you're to rest from that. I don't, I don't know that it would have uh, that there would have been any prohibition against you know carrying your bedroll on the Sabbath day, but the Jews had come up with all of these interpretive laws, you know, to to interpret the law, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, or something like thirty nine. I think it was thirty nine categories that the Jews had had uh, had invented <laughs> uh, concerning that one law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and, and it was you know they did that to explain it. But the problem is their their quote exposition, you know, their interpretation goes much further than the Scripture actually does, and, and then God's law actually does. You see that a lot of times in a in the gospel accounts. So they're accusing Jesus of doing something, or his disciples, or somebody else of doing something that's not really wrong. And I think that's the case here. I don't think he's really violating the Sabbath. But in their mind, he is. He's violating their understanding, their rules. And so there's no compassion. No compassion. I mean, there, there's a, just a little application here. I, because I think about this. When, when, when people are first saved, and I, I don't know, sometimes it seems like, um, uh, well, well, we come to the Lord in different ways, but some of us it's messy and we can still have a tendency to, to forget how messy it was. And once you're in, you know, once you're in the church culture, um, which I do advise, by the way, um, it's not perfect, but, uh, you know, what we have, a lot of times, you know, you hear people criticizing what we do, and, and uh, even us, I mean, I do, I criticize sometimes things that we do, what goes on in the American church especially, uh, it's not perfect, but it's the church. So, so I do advise, you know, <laughs> get in, get involved, and, and maybe you can make it perfect. I don't know. But, oh, maybe not. But at any rate, once you get in the culture, you can, at least, at least over time, you, you pretty much adapt to the culture. And you, you, probably on some level, you and I start accepting the traditions. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not good. But tr- tradition is not inherently bad. I like a lot of traditions. Uh, and, and, you know, and of course some traditions are scriptural. But not, they're, not, they're also not inherently good. Just because something is old, you know, it's been done this way for 50 years, or it's been done this way for... 1900 years or whatever it is. Just because something is old doesn't mean that it's, that it's right. As a friend of mine says, um, antiquity does not equal authenticity. You know, not necessarily. There are whole denominations that 
pretty much put forth that idea. You know, well, we've been around for you know 1,500 years or whatever. Or, you know, well, that doesn't necessarily make you right. I mean, there were heretics in the New Testament. You know, Paul had to deal with them. James had to deal with them. John had to deal with them. Uh, their offspring may be still around today. That doesn't mean that they're right. But you, you, you tend to adapt to some of the traditions and you, you adopt them. And if you're not careful, um, you can even begin to think that the, that the wrong ones are... Let me say it this way, because it's not so much the wrong ones. You, you can even begin to think that the ones that are indifferent, in other words, not really good or bad, you can get to the point to where you just think that they're, they're good. This is right. This is the right way to do it. And when people come in initially, messy like you and I probably were when we got started, when they come in and they're not doing it right, if we're not careful, this is how we'll deal with them. There's no rejoicing. There's no compassion because the Lord just delivered them. It's, what are you doing breaking our tradition? That's not how we do things. Who told you to do that? Who told you to dress like that? Who told you to meet at that particular time? You know, we, we, we meet at this particular time. We've been doing this for hundreds of years. Whatever the, the situation is, it's, it's better. In fact, Jesus says, He tells the Pharisees in one place, twice, actually twice in Matthew, He tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. God's not impressed with all the sacrifice. He does... Show mercy to the merciful. Well, they're not, the Jews aren't merciful. Not at all. They're, 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 um, they're upset here because their rules are being broken. So they, they said to the man that was healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. That's verse 10. Now here, here's another thing. This man... Um, I don't think he gets it <laughs> either. <laughs> I, I think th- they say it, it's the Sabbath. Again, verse 10. It's not law for you to take up your bed. Now, verse 11, he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. I think he's, it sounds like he's trying to shift blame. All I'm doing is what I was told. Look, the guy that healed me said, Take up your bed and walk. I don't think he really gets it either. Remember, what's, what's John's main point in all this? The identity of Jesus. Now, when I say he doesn't get it, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. I don't think, he, he knows he's been healed. But I don't think he gets who Jesus is. I don't even think he gets it as far... When, when we get, Lord willing, when we get over to chapter 9, you're going to see another man who doesn't have a good understanding about Jesus, but he's got a lot different attitude. I mean, when the, when, the, when the Jews confront him, <laughs> he's, just, he's just right back at them. Not, not in, a, uh, you know, in a mean way, but I mean, he, he, he's, he's just glad. I, he's, he says, I, I tell you this, I know one thing. I don't know whether that man that healed me is a sinner or not. I know this, I was blind, now I see. A lot different attitude than what you see from this man. It seems to be anyway. But he, he seems to be shifting the blame here. It's the man that healed me said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, keep that in mind. He, he, he doesn't even know <clears throat> who Jesus is. Verse 12, they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And he doesn't know. 
But, but here's, here's what happens. Jesus winds up coming to him again. No doubt, knowing what all's going on. Verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in, that place, in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I, I think that may be another indicator right there that this man's heart um, is, is not yet right, if I can say it that way. Um, in, in other words, Jesus is warning him. Now, I've, I've made a point before of, uh, for example, when we went, we, we went through Luke and, and we talked about... Um, there, you know, the Jews came to Jesus in one place, and and uh, there, there there was a question that arose about uh, the Galileans who were slain by Pilate, and and and, uh, and Jesus uh, Jesus mentioned that, and also those upon whom uh, eighteen people upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell, and Jesus said, "Do you think they were sinners above?" The rest, in other words, above you. In other words, they perish like that in those tragic ways because they're sinners. They're worse sinners than everybody. Do you think that? And he says, "No. I tell you, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish." And I've made a point of saying before, and I think this is correct. <clears throat> Sin is a result of the fall, and so because and I think this is kind of what Jesus is saying there, because something. Tragic happens to somebody um, doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's directly because of some sin they committed, but they are sinners. Everybody's a sinner, and and he makes that point. Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. In other words, everybody deserves that something like that would happen. It's only by God's grace that we're not all dropping like flies, because we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. We don't we don't have reason. To, to point finger in that regard. And then another blind man, you know, the question is asked Jesus, why is this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin? That's, that's interesting, by the way. He's born blind. You know, so they, I guess they're thinking maybe he sinned in the womb, right? Is it because of his own sin or is it because of his parents? And Jesus said, neither. But it's for the glory of God. So there too, he, he, he's clear that Whatever's wrong, in that case blindness, is not necessarily the direct result of that person sinning. And he didn't mean, by the way, that the person was sinless or that their parents were sinless. He just meant that's not why the guy was blind. The blindness was not a direct result of sin. So I want to be clear here that while that's not necessarily the case, the blindness or whatever it is, the, the tragedy is not necessarily the d- direct result of the individual sin. It can be. Now, I don't think that's a judgment call for you and I to make. But I think it's just a scriptural fact that it, that it happens, that it sometimes is. And you can go through and, and read about accounts. For example, in Acts 5, where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and they're stricken dead on the spot. Or 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul is giving instruction about the Lord's Supper, 
and warning people not to receive it, the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he says, this is the reason some of you have died. And some of you are sick, he says. This is the reason why some of you are sick and some have even died. Because they were mistreating each other. They were acting in sinful ways. And the Lord took them out. That happens. That happens. Um, <clears throat> like I say, I don't you know. That's a judgment call for you and I. And I, I would, I would not, you know, lay that kind of thing at somebody's feet. When somebody experiences a tragedy, what they need is our compassion and love. And if they are engaged in something ungodly, and there's, in, in, you know, then we find a loving way to basically say what Jesus is saying here. You know, sin no more. Stop sinning. But Jesus knows. I said that's not a judgment call for you and I, but it is for Jesus. Jesus knows. Obviously, the sin or the, uh, the, the infirmity here, it would seem, is the result of something, some, something directly. It's a direct result of some sin in this man's life. And Jesus tells him, stop sinning that nothing worse may happen to you. It's a strong, strong warning. Stop sinning. By the way, a warning we should all heed. Sin is serious with God. We don't always take it serious. I don't know that we ever take it as serious as we should. But God takes it seriously. So Jesus says, See you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, the man went away. Listen to what he does here. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, why did he go track down the Jews... You know, they, they, they were incensed already because this man had healed him on the Sabbath and told him to take up his bed and walk. And they wanted to know, who is this man? And he, he honestly didn't know. I don't know. But now he knows. Why does he go look them up to tell them? That's kind of strange, isn't it? Probably not what most of us would do. I mean, we, we okay, now I know who it is, but I'm not going to tell them because they're out to get him. Kind of strange. And this is why, verse 16 says, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So now it, it would seem they've more or less forgotten about the man. They're just going to deal directly with Jesus. Like I say, the man sh- shifted the blame. They seem to accept that. They, they want excuse to, uh, to get to Jesus anyway. And so they are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What was he doing? Healing a man. Healing a man. And yes, he told him to take up his bed and walk. But uh, again, that does not seem to be a violation of the Sabbath law. Although it was a violation of their rules. So he's indicted now for healing on the Sabbath. Now look at Jesus' response. and, And we're getting back to his identity here. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now that's, that's what he gives as justification for his working on the Sabbath. He doesn't, he doesn't deny that he was working. I mean, he, he, he performed a work. He doesn't even get into an argument with, him, although like, uh, with them, although like I say, I, I don't think Jesus broke the Sabbath law and I don't think the, the other guy broke the Sabbath law by carrying his bed. And Jesus could have made that point. 
You know, we may have violated your tradition, but we didn't break the Sabbath law. But he doesn't even go there. He goes straight to his identity. This takes takes the dispute to a deeper, deeper level. Knowing where this is going to go. I mean, they've got enough problem with him working on the Sabbath without him making himself somehow equal with God. And he's not ignorant of that fact. And, and that's where he takes them anyway. And here's his justification. My father is working until now, and I am working. My father, obviously he's talking about God. And he's saying, God always works. He never stops working. He's always doing. Always moving. It's odd the way, and we're all guilty of this probably, but... It's odd the way that we talk about God sometimes. You know, we, talk, we have a good church service or a revival meeting or whatever it is, and we say, man, God was moving. Well, of course He was, because if He wasn't, we wouldn't have been. We'd have just all fell out right there on the spot, and that would have been the end of us. Of course He is. He's, al- He's always sustaining everything. He's always working. And Jesus says, my Father is working until now, and I am working. He's making a connection there. First of all, by calling him Father and then saying, but I've got to do what he does. I, I remember, some of you will remember this, years ago, I don't know that they run these anymore, but it was um, some anti-smoking campaign years ago, and they show this guy walking through the woods with this little boy. And, you know, and I don't remember all of the stuff, but he'd, he'd do something like, the man would like pick up a rock, throw it across the lake, and you see the little boy bend over and pick up a rock and throw it out there. Goes down there and he does, you know, two or three other things. He does, and the little boy imitates him every time. And then he sits down by a tree and he gets out his pack of cigarettes and he lights up and puts the pack down and he's looking around at the nature or whatever. And then it shows the little boy pick up a cigarette and put it in his mouth. And, you know, that was the ad campaign. It was basically saying, you know, your, your children are going to do what you do. Well, that's, that, that is Jesus' point here. Not, not anti-smoking campaign. But <clears throat> that, that you will imitate the one with whom you share a nature. In other words, like a child imitates their father, Jesus saying, I imitate my father because I'm his child and because I'm of the same nature. We act alike. We do alike. We're both engaged in like things. My Father works until now, and I am doing. Now, His point may slip by us if we're not careful, but it didn't slip by the Jews. They, they knew exactly what He was saying. To, to call Him my Father, number one. To call God my Father, number one. The way that Jesus does. I mean, he speaks intimately about him. And then, not only that, but to go on to say, I do what he does. Like I say, they understood the connection he was making in nature. I'm his offspring. I act like him. There's a family resemblance. There are characteristics that are shared, attributes that are shared. And they understood that. 
And verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. <laughs> they, were, they were already persecuting Jesus. In verse 16, now they're seeking... I mean, it's bad enough to be seeking to kill, right? But they're seeking all the more to kill. I mean, he's, they're really fired up now. Why? Because, John says in verse 18, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, again, at least in their view, He was, not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. You, you see how John equates that, calling God Father, he equates that with being equal with God, in the sense that Jesus was doing it. The, the Jews did that. I mean, John's recording it. The, the Jews did it. But here's the thing. They were right. I mean, there's a lot of times they drew some bad conclusions. On this one, they were right. He called God His Father, making Himself equal with God. This is what John's wanting us to see all the way through this Gospel account. Jesus is God. He's the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Emmanuel. God with us. God in the flesh. He's making Himself equal with God. And He's not being shy about it. He's not apologizing for it. Because He's God. Because He's God. What makes Christianity different from the other world religions, other ideas, philosophies? Well, obviously the world's not going to you know, agree with me when I say this, but um, what, what makes a difference is that, is that it's true. In other words, Jesus is God. I mean, it's true that there are others out there who claim to be. Jesus is God. He's God. Now, John says, that's why I wrote the book, so that you would understand this, so that you would see this, so that you would believe this, and so that believing in Him, you would have eternal life. Because there's no other source, no other way of salvation, no other source of eternal life. It's only through coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's only through faith in Him and His atoning work at Calvary. He's God. He's God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your, for your Word revealing such truth about Yourself to us. Uh, Lord, there's no way we would come to these things on our own um, understand, seek out, none of these things. We're, we're totally dependent upon Your revelation and Your grace in giving it. Lord, we thank You. We pray, Lord, as we, we are now ending another weekend and preparing to enter another week where we go through routines, 
Help us, Lord, to keep a proper perspective in our home life, to be the godly parents, spouses, family members that we should be. Lord, always being concerned for those in our family who do not know You and and, uh, seeking Your wisdom and being careful to be the witnesses that we need to be, lovingly presenting the truth. And in the world, Lord, help us to see things as they are, to understand that we're, we're surrounded by people daily who are perishing without God because they're without You. We ask for opportunities to share the truth, to to point others to Christ. And Lord, uh, of course we know they're all around us, so we need Your wisdom. Grant us wisdom to speak words in season. Again, to faithfully represent You as we're mingling with the world, working along beside them or, or studying beside them or whatever the case is. Make us faithful ambassadors, faithful representatives of Christ so that they too will seek You out, so that they too will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. For their salvation, and Lord, all for Your honor and glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.